I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, whether you are here in the room or you're joining us wherever you are, uh, in your living room, in a car, in your bedroom, on your back porch, we're glad you're joining us this morning. We are in our last week of a series called um, This Is we. And so we've been going through this series, this four-week series, and we've been talking about the guiding values of what it means to be a part of this thing that we call Monmouth Christian Church. And so we're going to start off with reviewing them real quick, okay? So here it goes. The first one is this. We talked about this week one. We are faith-filled, big-thinking, bet-the-farm risk-takers. We will never insult God with small-thinking or safe-living. I love that one, right? Just gets me all excited. Week two, we said this. We are spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers. The church does not exist for us. We are the church and we exist for the world. That's awesome. Week three, week three, we said this. We will do anything short of sin to reach people who don't know Christ. To reach people no one is reaching, we'll have to do things no one is doing. We'll have to do things no one is doing. Before we get into this week's guiding value uh, for us for this last week of This Is We, I want to remind you of, of the constant undertow, the constant friction with all of these. This week may be a time of rejoicing and relief and celebration for some of you, um, but this week, just like all the other weeks, may get uncomfortable, and it may feel like God's grinding on you on something because there's something inside us. We had this conversation over the last couple weeks that runs against every one of these guiding values, and that thing inside of us is that we're selfish, Every single one of us, right? This is the profound truth. If you don't know this about yourself, now you do. We are selfish, okay? I, I, I actually, I want everyone to say this with, with, with me in just a second. And if you're, if you're on Facebook or if you're on Church Online, like right in the chat box, it'll be the weirdest collection of chorus that Facebook has ever seen is a bunch of people just saying, we are selfish. But we're all gonna say this together, okay? Here we go. On three. One, two, three. We are selfish, Amen. Have a great week. You guys are dismissed. <laughs> now, now you might, you might, you might go, oh, uh, but Sean, Sean, ha haven't you heard the story about, uh, Sean, did you ever see the movie about, and in fact, that would actually be exactly my point, is that we are intrinsically so selfish all the time that the moments in time when someone is truly unselfish, we have to memorialize them in blockbuster films. Right? We have to go, no way! Look at this guy! I mean, kind of like, kind of like Sarah from Western. Do you remember Sarah from Western Oregon? Well, maybe that's a, a little vague, but I, I think that if we watch this about her story, I think that we'll uh, remember her story. The last Saturday in April the second game of a softball doubleheader between Central Washington and Western Oregon. Well, we were both neck and neck fighting for the conference championship. As a senior, this was Sarah Tukolsky's last chance to win a championship. She'd never hit a home run before, not in college, not in her life. 
I'm not very tall. Um, I, I'm more a line drive hitter. I don't hit for power. But in the top of the second inning, with two runners on, on the second pitch, that changed. I hit that pitch and it just went. <laughs> and we're just cheering and the runners are cheering as they round the base to head to home. And then I'm going, where's Sarah? In her excitement, Tukolsky failed to touch first base, so she quickly turned back. Her pivoting leg just didn't pivot with her. And I heard her kind of yell, and she just dropped to the ground, and I was like, oh, no. Just fell immediately and was in a lot of pain. Just, you know, I tried to keep my leg straight, but I was in so much pain that I couldn't really keep still. Tukolsky, with a torn ACL, crawled back to first base. She was a long way from reaching home plate and keeping her first and only home run. When she got back to first base, she just, she laid there and she hugged on the first base. And then I, at that time, I was staring at the base and I go, what on earth are we going to do? And I turned the umpire standing right next to me. I said, what is the ruling if I put somebody in for Sarah? He said it'll be a two-run single. If anybody would have on her team would have helped uh, Sarah, she would have been a called called out. That was the problem. None of Tukolsky's teammates were allowed to touch her. That's when Central Washington's Mallory Holtman, a player with more home runs than any other in conference history, a player for the opposing team, spoke up. I went to the home plate umpire and asked if we could pick her up and carry her, and he looked at me a little strange. And the umpire went and said, yes, you can do that. I'm still standing there in shock. I don't, I said, thank you so much. We asked her, so like, is it okay if we pick you up and carry you around the bases? And I say yes, and you know, and say thank you. And she says, you hit the ball over the fence, you deserve it. For that reason only, because she deserved it, Holtman and Liz Wallace began to carry the injured Tukolsky, stopping to touch her left foot on each base as the three made their way around the diamond. We actually started laughing because we were just wondering what this would look like to all the people in the stands. When I looked up, I I didn't see, you know, giant like smiles and screams. I saw emotion and tears and and people crying. It's a great moment when someone has character to step up and do the right thing at the right time. It's emotional. You're proud. Be associated with those kids. That's the first home run of the season for number eight, Sarah Tikolsky. That moment 
That moment with Sarah and those two other girls was so profound, was so uncommon to the human experience that ESPN did this big old huge thing on it. And, uh, and then they uh, actually traveled all, the next year they traveled all around the world sharing the story and sharing their story all the way it culminated to where they won what's called an ESPY, which is a sports award for the best moment in sports in the whole year, that one moment. Because we are selfish. And when we see moments of unselfishness, it's so shocking and uncommon. So this week, week's four guiding value is one that is too going to press against this truth. We say this, here it is. We will lead the way with irrational generosity. We truly believe it is more blessed to give than to receive. We will lead the way with irrational generosity. A part of this phrase actually comes right from the mouth of Jesus. In the book of Acts, it's recorded that Paul, who wrote a bunch of the the Bible, um, Paul says this in Acts 20, verse 35. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's it right there. Jesus said it, right? Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, here's the thing. This word blessed is kind of a weird word because we use it all the time, but most of us would have a hard time defining it, right? We're like, oh, really blessed. It's been a blessed weekend. It's been a blessed trip. Hope, may God bless you, right? And it's kind of a weird word that we use all the time, but we have a hard time defining. In, in the language that it's written in, in the Greek, in this moment, it, it could aptly be translated as happy, So Jesus could just be saying this, it is more happy to give than to receive. Now I know if you're an English teacher, that's not good English. It is more happy to give than to receive, but that's that's what Jesus says. It is more blessed to give than is to receive. Now about eight months ago, if you were around or if you're joining us, uh, uh, we did a whole series for four weeks on this kind of idea, and we talked about throughout the series the difference between a scarcity mindset and an abundancy mindset. See, a scarcity mindset, well, well it's kind of like this, okay? So, so let's say, let's say um, I make myself an apple pie. Now, I did. I made myself, well, I didn't. I bought it from the store, and then my wife put it in the oven, so I didn't actually do anything except for hold this up in front of you, Okay? And one afternoon, I've got this apple pie that's waiting for me when I get home. And one afternoon, you stop by our house. Now, my wife is incredibly friendly and hospitable and way more kind than I am. And so you come to the door, and she's glad to see you. I'd come to the door and be like, what do you want, right? And so she invites you in, and you go on the back porch, and you're sitting there hanging out with my wife. And and I come walking in, and she says, oh, look, it's Billy. Billy's here, right? And I go, so glad to see you. And we're sitting there and we're talking and she goes, she goes, you know, Sean bought an apple pie. You you want a slice of apple pie? Right? And then and then you'll go, what I mean, you're an American, so your answer is yes, right? Yes, I'll eat an apple pie. Okay? It's it's one of the tests. You may not have known this, but back in the 50s and 60s, it's one of the tests they knew if you were a commie. Is if you didn't eat apple pie, you were clearly a commie. And so, right? So, you, so she says yes, and so she goes in the kitchen, and she goes, and she goes to get you a, a slice of apple pie. It's still warm. Isn't this awesome? Uh, this is one of the gifts of being online is you don't have to smell this apple pie for the rest of service like all these people in the room do, okay? So she gets an apple pie. In my mind, this was going to be a lot cleaner and neater, 
than it actually is gonna turn out to be. But she goes to get a slice of apple pie and she gets you some apple pie. Now, scarcity mindset says this. Scarcity mindset says, what? My apple pie? Look at, it's missing. I only have this much. And if you know, this is a standard serving size. That's why they put in a bowl so you can have a fork and just eat the whole thing at once, right? I only have, isn't that kind of an absurdity in that moment of like, look, I only have this much. An abundancy mindset says this, you know what? There are more apple trees making apples. There's more wheat being made that's gonna be ground up into flour. There are more chemicals in this world so that we can bleach that flour and then enrich it and make it white and rich flour, which is way better than real flour, right? And, and there are more apple pies in this world. But you see, so many of us view this world as a transaction all the time. For me to have more, you have to have less. For me to have more, you have to have less. So for you, as soon as you get this, I have less than I did before. But God invites us to see in the world in a different way. He invites us to know and believe that God is good and able, that there are more apple pies in this world that we just haven't seen yet. Paul, we talked about earlier, he writes to a church in a town called Corinth. And we're going to look at a, 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 a passage, he says, in 2 Corinthians 8. So if you have a Bible, you like following along, you can turn to 2 Corinthians 8, and we'll get there in a minute. But he's telling a story. Let me give you some context. He's telling a story to the Corinthian church about another church in a region called Macedonia. Okay? Now, Macedonia is like the northern neighbor of Corinth. It's a region, and Corinth is a city, but it's, it's north of them. They were, they were neighbors, right? And Macedonia was busted, I mean, Macedonia was uneducated, it was a mess, it was in the sticks, it was, it was backwards, hillbilly country, okay? And so in your mind, just imagine, just think about that, that place that is for you, Macedonia. And this is, he's telling the church at Corinth. Now, Corinth was a trading hub. So Corinth had all this stuff come through. And Corinth was a, was a beautiful town of wealth and luxury. And so there's this dramatic socioeconomic difference between these two locations. And he's going, he's telling this story to the church of Corinth because he's trying to raise money for the church at Jerusalem. Okay, you with me? There's three places now. We got the region of Macedonia, the city of Corinth he's writing to, and then the city of, the church at Jerusalem that he's raising money for. And he's raising money for because things have gotten hard and they've gotten difficult. And, and J Jerusalem at the time is kind of like the world headquarter of the Christian church. Okay? So he's going around raising money. And in that... He writes this to them, okay? So 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2, he's talking about the church at Macedonia, okay? And he says this, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity, for I testified that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. I mean, look at that. That is a crazy story. But a couple of things I want you to know is first is in verse three, right? It says this. Um, but if you're a math teacher, you might like doing word problems. This is a, a math word problem that Paul gives us, 
okay? It, it says this, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. Uh, oh, sorry. Nope, that's not my right one. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go, here it is. In the midst of severe trial, there we go. In the midst of severe trial, their overflowing joy, and if you're doing a word problem, and means plus, right? Extreme poverty welled up, accumulated, came to be in rich generosity. Here's what Paul's saying. Look at this, look at this. Their overflowing joy plus poverty equaled generosity. What world did the Macedonians live in? Right? Like, which one of you would be like, well, you know, I'd really like to be generous, but I'm just not poor enough yet. <laughs> right? Overflowing joy and extreme poverty. And starts this verse with the, after very severe, in the midst of very severe trial. Now, we don't know what it is. Paul doesn't tell us what that severe trial is, but you have to know that their neighbors to the south in Corinth, they knew what the Macedonians were going through. Overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now look further. In the next verse, it says this, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. It says that they pleaded with Paul. They pleaded with Paul to let him, to let, I mean, think about this conversation. Macedonia is going through a trial, poor, busted up people, and they're pleading with Paul. You, you imagine Paul comes through Macedonia, and they say, hey, Paul, we took up an offering last week, and here's, here's we want to send this to the church of Jerusalem. And can you imagine the conversation? Paul goes, Paul goes, well, no, 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 no. Hey, Macedonia, you guys got it rough. Like, you guys, hey, why don't you guys just take care of yourself? Right? This is for the wealthier churches. This is for someone else. This is for the church down the road to take care of. Right? This is for Corinth. And they plead with him. They plead. No, no, no. Please. Please don't rob us of the joy. Don't rob us of the blessing to give, to be generous, to be irrationally generous. Because you remember, Paul, you remember what Jesus said? It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. So how is it? I, I, it makes me wonder, like, uh, would the Macedonians be embarrassed the way we raise money sometimes in church today, right? Well, we gotta send some kids to college. I mean, we gotta send some kids to camp. Who wants to buy an apple pie? And if the Macedonians would've gone, I don't need your apple pie. Just let me have the privilege of being generous. So how is it? How is it that a church like Macedonia embarrassed a church like Corinth in their generosity? Paul tells us actually at the end of this in verse five. So if you have a Bible, you can, you can look. Uh, let's skip forward one more slide here. Oh, back. There we go. He says this. And they exceeded our expectations. He, he, here's the equation of how they were rationally generous. Okay, this, this, I want you to see this. This is the answer if you want to be a more generous person, if you see in yourself, like, I want to be generous, I want to be irrationally generous, I want to live open-handed, but I just, when I, when I stand back and look at my life, I just don't look generous, right? This is how it does it. They gave themselves first to the Lord. First of all, above everything else, they, they, didn't, give, they didn't give because the church of Jerusalem was impressive, 
They didn't give to the fund because, oh, you remember, oh man, I went to Jerusalem one time, man, whoo, have you, have you been a part of worship there? They kill it, right? Man, have you, have you seen what they've done in impacting the world? They didn't give because of Jerusalem. They didn't give. They didn't exceed expectations. They didn't give because they were impressive. Paul doesn't say they exceeded our expectation. I mean, those Macedonians, man, they have something in them. They're a kind of people that set the world on fire. No, he doesn't say that. He says that they gave because they first gave themselves to the Lord. They first gave themselves to the Lord. You remember the old hymn? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, they did not give in joy and poverty because they themselves were impressive. They gave because they first gave themselves fully to the Lord. If you want to be a more generous person, you do not need to change your habits. You need to change your focus. If you want to be a more generous person in the way that you live life, if you want to leave a mark on generations to come as someone who lived differently than everybody else in this world, who lived with kind of irrational generosity that changed lives, you don't need to change your habits. You need to change your focus. This past winter, a man in our church learned about a couple who was trying to buy some property and, and uh, have a home built on that property. And uh, as you can imagine, if you have bought a house, the first time you buy a house, you have no idea what you're doing. And uh, through a series of miscalculations, it came close to what was supposed to be the completion of them living on a new property in a new house, and there was no house. And so what was coming was going to be a very large mortgage payment for a house that never got built. Clearly, what was likely to happen was just going to be a financial ruin, right? And so this man in our church heard about this, and he offered, he said, well, I'll come out. He's a retired contract. He said, I'll come out, and I'll take a look, and we'll see what we can do. And so he went out day after day after day after day for months and months and months and months and gave himself fully to them because he first had given himself to the Lord. And uh, the, the, the parents of this couple uh, told, told me that every day that he said he was gonna come out, they expected that to be the day that he didn't show up, right? Because they were just, the kids were just so astounded by the generosity of this man who gave tens of thousands of dollars of his expertise to helping them get their house built. And towards the end, there was a discussion from the parents and this man about why he did it. And, uh, and he said this. He said, I believe that God had told me to give whatever was necessary to help them and serve them. Whatever was necessary. Months of serving them because he had first given himself to his God and then he could live open-handed with irrational generosity. Here's... Here's what, I, here's what we believe, that we will lead the way with irrational generosity because we truly believe it is more blessed to give than receive. 
So um, I want to do a little experiment here, okay? Now, nobody's going to know. Not at some point am I going to trick you and be like, okay, now raise your hand. Everybody stand up. Mark in the chat box. Indicate however you want, right? Nobody's going to know, okay? But I I want you to do something for me here is um, I want you to think of a number between 1 and 10 in how you would rate yourself in your relationship, in the fervor of your relationship with God, Okay? Think about it. how would you rate yourself? Now, now here, okay, let me give you some boundaries. One, you can't mark one, that's the devil, okay? So unless you're the devil, the eternal enemy of God, don't mark one. And if you are the devil, the door's that way, okay? So, and you can't mark 10, okay? Because you have not emptied yourself to the point of death on the cross for, the, for all of mankind, fully in submission to God our Father. You are not Jesus, you can't mark 10, okay? So in your mind, or on a piece of paper, right somewhere, where would you mark yourself in your fervor, in your passion, in your relationship with God between one and 10? Okay, you got a number? Okay. Now, how would you rate yourself in generosity? On a scale of one, being the devil, comes to kill, steal, and destroy, to 10, right? Jesus, gave himself fully and completely for the sins of the world, where would you rate yourself? And here's what I bet, that if you were honest enough with yourself in this moment, that if you were honest enough, that those two numbers look really similar. You see, generosity isn't about our resources or our assets. Can, can, can you be generous? Can you be generous and give $10? To something. Could, could that be extremely, ge- irrationally generous if you gave $10? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you have a five-year-old come who's been selling lemonade all day in the heat of the sun and they hand you $5 and say, I, I want to help some kids who, who don't have a home, would that not melt your heart? Now, you can also write a check for $100,000 and be incredibly greedy. But when God calls us to irrational generosity, it's born out of our pursuit first of our God and then to those around us. We will lead the way with irrational generosity because we truly believe it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so that you know that these are things that we truly live out and believe as a church. Uh, Let me tell you that most years, that most years we end up giving away on a normal year uh, somewhere just north of $50,000 in cash to individuals, causes, and organizations. And that doesn't include any outreach events or any time we are serving our church and our community with things like Back to School Bash that we did at Central last week and in a week and a half we're doing up at Fall City. To completely discount other groups and organizations, we send away over $50,000 of our funds. Here's the crazy thing. Here's the most amazing thing about it. This year, sheer chaos. Can we just define 2020 as just chaos? Okay. Um, apparently, a phrase I use all the time, and other pastors give me a hard time about it, is dumpster fire. Right? And if, if 2020 had a mascot, it would just be a dumpster fire rolling down Main Street. Okay. 
In, in this moment of sheer chaos and uncertainty, we are on pace this year to give away over $75,000 because of your irrational generosity. Because of your irrational generosity, we are on pace to give away more money than we have in 15 years. To live open-handed and generous because we truly believe it is more blessed to give than to receive. Generosity isn't something that we do. It is who we are. There's a book in the Bible called Acts. And in, in the book of Acts, it kind of tells the story of the early church. And um, uh, it was a place of just irrational generosity. In fact, all throughout the book of Acts, you'll see these moments of just irrational generosity, and there's never an account of like one person who writes a check or one person who does this. Every time it talks about generosity in the church, it talks about it as a collective action, right? Because it was just, it was who they were. It wasn't something that they did in the early church, it was who they were. But there's one moment in the book of Acts, there's this one story where there, there's a story that's recorded about a family that didn't give. It's almost like Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, he sees all this generosity, all this generosity, and then there comes a moment where someone's not generous, and he goes, well, well this is weird. We should write this down. This seems very unnatural to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You see, you can be generous and not be a follower of Jesus, but I, I find it hard to believe that you can devote yourself fully and first to the Lord and not be generous. The God who gave himself. There's this beautiful passage that I love, I quote all the time. It says, he who gave his own son for us, what more will he not give for you? Our God and Father who is willing to give anything and everything that he might call you a son or a daughter that he might buy you, some of the biblical language is that he might ransom you, that he may pay the cost to buy you out of bondage and slavery. What more would he not give for you? And if we are to be the people that, that grow up to look more and more like our Father, that follow in the example of our Savior and Jesus, then we must be people who are irrationally generous. In fact, what it says when it sums up the church, in Acts 4, there's this verse that Luke writes down, and he says this, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, look at that, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy person among them. It makes me wonder, what would happen if every follower of Jesus lived this out? What would happen if every follower of Jesus lived with a kind of irrational generosity that didn't make sense to an observing world? Well, a couple years ago, Relevant Magazine commissioned a short study on the effects of generosity and what could be. You maybe have heard this before, but I'm gonna read it again. According to Relevant Magazine's studies, uh, the average Jesus follower, self-professing Christian, donates on average 2.5% of their income to any nonprofit, okay, including the church, any nonprofit, 2.5%. So they asked the question what would happen if every Jesus follower gave 10%? Now, in the church world, in the Bible, we call that a tithe. That literally means a tenth. But as we talked about before, you can give a tithe and be generous, and you can give a tithe and be greedy, okay? But they, for a baseline, they said, what if everyone gave 10%? Okay? 
And for some of you, that would be irrationally generous. For some of you, just be a good starting point. But this is what they found. There would be an additional $165 billion for the church to use and distribute. The global impact of this would be phenomenal. Here's just a few things the church could do with that kind of money. This is according to Relevant Magazine. For $25 billion, the church itself could relieve global hunger, starvation, and death from preventable diseases in five years. For $12 billion, they could eliminate illiteracy in five years. For $15 billion, they could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically at places in the world where one billion people live on less than a dollar per day. For an additional billion dollars, they could fully fund all overseas mission work, and the church would still have 100 to $110 billion in the American church. 100 to $110 billion. See, generosity matters. Not because we need your money or because God needs your money. In fact, today, in the midst of all this chaos, because of your irrational generosity, like the church is in better shape financially than we have been in 15 years, which is crazy and ridiculous, okay? So, and before you think that this is like a closing for like some capital campaign that we're gonna launch, we, it's not. It's not, but here's what I believe. I believe that if Christians took seriously the call of Jesus to be irrationally generous, if we really believe that it's more blessed to give than to receive and we live that out, that we would turn over our community in a minute. That an unbelieving world would stand shocked at a people who so loved their God and devoted themselves first to their God that they lived open-handed, that the, the kind of irrational generosity that we write movies about, that win espies because the world's never seen. You see, if you're here this morning and you don't know that God, like there have been people in this church for a hundred and almost 70 years that have been irrationally generous, then this moment you could hear about the generosity of a good God who loves you and is willing to give anything and everything that you might be his son or daughter. We believe that we will lead the way in irrational generosity because we believe it is truly more blessed to give than it is to receive. We believe. 